Hi, I'm Ryan Becker, and you're listening to the Rock Hill Seventh-day Adventist Church Official Sermon Archive. You can find more information about our church at www.rockhillsdachurch.org. We hope by listening to this message that you are encouraged and challenged in your walk with Christ. A few years ago, I worked at a summer camp in South Carolina in the Soka Pines Ranch. It was the first summer camp I ever worked at, and I had these campers come in. They were brothers. Their older sisters worked at the camp. One was a staff in training, and the other was a full-time counselor. Their younger brother was a teen camper in my cabin, and then the youngest brother came a week before during tween week, and he was known as the kid who looked like the Justin Bieber. <laughs> they, all, they all walked around calling him Justin Bieber, and the, this family was the stump family, and they live out uh, near Raleigh in North Carolina. Now, this was four or five years ago, so they're, they're kind of grown up now, and Zach is about 21, and Ryan was 17. And just two weeks ago, I'm assuming, I don't know exactly how this went down, but Zach heard a loud bang coming outside of his house. And so he went outside and found that Ryan, at 17 years old, had gotten into a single car accident just near their house, had flipped his truck and was found unconscious. Now, I don't know exactly how Zach was alerted to it. That's how I'm assuming it happened. It could have been that he drove by, happened near the same time, and saw the aftermath too. It could have been either or. But I cannot imagine finding your younger brother in that kind of situation. He was taken to the hospital. He had brain swelling. They did surgery on him. They got him stabilized, but he was still in the ICU, and he was in a coma, and it was not a medical coma. It was his own coma. And just last week, he passed away. And I'm watching this family try and process and, and, and grieve this huge loss and this unexpected loss. What do you do when you face a situation like that? Especially when you've seen someone who's been kind of like a champion of faith. How do you process when something that difficult happens? And how do you walk through those moments that we refer to as valleys? Because if you look at a mountain, and and when we go on like a spiritual retreat, or we go on some sort of church outing or church function, we say, wow, that was such a mountaintop experience. Some people refer to them as, as spiritual highs, or your high moments, right? And then you come back to your life, and you enter this valley, You kind of come down. And the problem with valleys is they tend to be really long. And they tend to be in the shadow of the mountain that you just came down from, so they're dark. How do we deal with that sudden transition? That's what I want to talk about this morning. When you go from a place where everything is great to a place that is so dark and scary so quickly. 
and 1 Kings 18, and that's where we're going to be for the majority of this morning, 1 Kings 18, we enter this midway through the story of Elijah. And this is one of the more famous stories in Christianity. And what has been going on, James 5 shows us some enlightenment on this, is that there has been a three and a half year drought that has hit the land. It, was, it came because God said, hey, Israel is not following me again, and there is a punishment that needs to happen here. There is a discipline that needs to happen here. Elijah, you are going to pray, and there will be no rain until you pray again. Three and a half years. Now, when in, especially in these societies, when it doesn't rain, your crops don't grow. So not only, a drought also means famine. So for three and a half years, the nation of Israel has been starving. And it gets so desperate that at the beginning of chapter 18, the king himself goes out and he sends people to spread out on the land and, and, and look and say, anything you can find, grab and take because we need to take care of this nation. And he's out himself, and, and this leader Jezebel is so angry with the prophets of God because it is a prophet that caused this drought to begin with, right? It is a prophet that has, that has brought this calamity on them in the name of his God, and she's angry. And she sends out to have all of the prophets of God killed. And it is here that a, that a man named Obadiah, a, a God-fearing, a God-loving man, and I'm summarizing kind of the beginning of 18 because we're going to be in the second half of it for the majority of this morning. But Obadiah hears of this and he hides a hundred of them in caves to protect them from being caught. And Jezebel is still on the hunt for all of these prophets. And so Elijah gets called by God and says, hey, go present yourself to Ahab, who is under the leadership of Jezebel, because I'm going to send rain again. So Elijah shows up. He tells Obadiah, hey, go tell King Ahab that I'm here and I need to speak to him. And Obadiah is like, do you not know what's been going on? Both of us die. <laughs> If I go to Ahab and tell him that there's a prophet that we've missed, and it's the prophet that caused this entire problem to begin with, Elijah quells his, calms him down and, and says, no, go tell him Elijah is here. And Ahab, the king who has an entire nation to protect, has an entire nation to provide for in addition to himself, says, I will see Elijah myself. He says, I'm going to get to the bottom of this on my own. And in verse 17 is where we are going to pick up in this story. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? They see Elijah as the cause of this. They do not see God as the cause of this. They do not see the religious side of this. 
They see a man who prayed, and all of a sudden, the nation is starving. And no one's thought to say why, they've just sought to put blame on someone. Is it you, you troubler of Israel? Continuing in verse 18, and Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Elijah flips it. He says, no, no, it wasn't me. You caused this because you abandoned the Lord and his commandments. He has said, all right, then this is what happens when you abandon me. So I have a challenge. And he has him summon all of the nation of Israel to Mount Carmel. In verse 20, so Ahab sent to all people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And I want, to, I want you to see this because Elijah is one prophet. He did not come with anyone. He is one man standing against an entire nation of very hungry, very thirsty, and very angry people who are out for his head. This is not just the 850 prophets and the king and the king's guard. This is the entire nation of Israel present. And in the face of all of these people that quite literally want Elijah dead, Elijah says this in verse 21, And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. So let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and, I will, and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bowl and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, well, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. So they're going to have almost like a sacrifice off. Whichever God responds, that's the God we follow. And they accept it. Thinking 450 prophets, verse 1, it's kind of obvious who you think is, is going to win. So the 450 prophets go first and they, they grab a bull and they put it on the altar and they prepare it. And listen to this in verse 26. And they took the bull that was given them, they prepared it, and they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself. Or maybe he's on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. This is a prophet mocking 
literally an entire nation that wants him dead. Talk about confidence. Talk about overconfidence. But they continue in verse 28, and they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out of them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. So then Elijah steps up. It's his turn. And so we're going to go in verse 30. He brings all of the people near to him. It says, Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. And Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two sayas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, hey, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. So the servants did what he said, and then he goes, well, do it a second time. Do it a third time. The amount of water that they put on this altar was about what could fill up a hot tub by today's standards. There is no way fire is going to light this altar on fire. What Elijah does, he's so confident in in God's response here that he says, I'm going to make it so there is no mistake. You guys put the water in so you know that the water isn't tainted. Also, this is significant because remember, water is a precious resource to Israel right now. The fact that they were even willing to listen to him is amazing. But he said, hey, there's no way I've cheated here. When you guys see the results, you will know that I did not manipulate, that there is no way that this could have come from me. Verse 36, and at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up all the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. I want you to notice the stark differences between how the prophets of Baal prepared their altar and attempted to have a sacrifice and how Elijah prepared his. Because I believe there's something important for us to learn in those differences. And it is this. There is no power in the ritual itself. 
The power comes from the God who responds. And that is something for us to remember because there is no power in this pulpit. There is no power in my voice. There is no power in the hymns that we sing. The power comes from the God that we worship. And if we become attached to the method of how we do things, we miss out on the God who provides. We miss out on where the source of the power is. So we must keep our eyes on God first and foremost and not on the methods. Now, there are methods that are more effective, yes, and there are methods that are dangerous, yes. So I'm not insinuating that it wouldn't have mattered if Elijah had cut himself a bunch of times. There is a reverence, there is a, there is a, a heart and an attitude that we take as we approach the altar. But the power isn't there itself. The power is in the Lord. And Elijah knows this. Now, I want to pay attention very closely to the order of events that happens next. So we're going to start in in verse 40 here. And Elijah said to him, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Now, this is one of those moments where people who are not Christian look at the Bible and go, see, God is so vindictive or God is so angry and God just kills people and has genocides. But I want you to remember that in this specific instance, these are God's chosen people. These are, these are the people that God has dedicated centuries to who these prophets of Baal have come in and misled them, have put them in a situation where now, because they've been misled, they have had no food and no water for three years. When God's people are hurt, when God's people are threatened and put in danger, God responds with justice. And in this moment, letting those prophets leave would not have been just because they could easily come back and do it again. And so he has them put to death. And I don't understand all the reasonings of God's justice, but I'm really glad that I'm not the one who has to call those shots because I would get it wrong almost 100% of the time. So first the prophets are slaughtered and then... Elijah says to Ahab in verse 41, Go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of rushing of rain. And then Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and and catch this, the Lord tells him to pray, and Elijah sends Ahab away. Elijah says, hey, you need to leave here because rain is coming, and I know you're going to go speak to Jezebel, so go now, report to who you need to report to, but rain is coming. Elijah prays, Ahab reaches Jezebel, and he he tells her this in verse 1 of chapter 19. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, 
and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And remember, these were prophets that served Jezebel. They were on her payroll. So then Jezebel sends a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Elijah has just stood alone against an entire nation that was out for his head. He is, they have watched fire come down and light up an altar that was drenched, completely drowned in water. One woman sends him a threat. You'd think that his response, especially in light of what just happened, would be, bring it on. <laughs> right? I mean, or to some effect of, you know, I'm protected. You're not going to get to me here. But he knows that Jezebel has been hunting prophets. He hasn't had to face her one-on-one yet. And he knows that God hasn't protected those other prophets from dying. So what's to say that maybe God won't protect him? He starts getting these kind of doubts in his head. And so his response, instead of one of confidence in the Lord, is this in verse 3. Then he was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Now we're going to stop there in the scripture today. But here's, here's the question that this prompts in my mind as I read this. How do you go from standing one versus a thousand, one versus thousands of people, and confidently, you know, almost mocking them as they fail, to being afraid of the threat of one woman? How does that transition happen? And I believe it happens for two reasons. Number one, it is this. This fear comes when we forget what God has done for us in the past. When we forget who God has been, suddenly we don't have any trust that He will do anything in the future. When we, forgot, when we forget the things that God has done for us or in our lives or in the lives of others, it is easy to become distracted by the problems. And that leads me into number two. It happens when you focus on your problem instead of your God. It is in those moments that fear comes. Because you've forgotten how God has led you and you see this problem that seems unsolvable that may put your very life in danger. And when a threat comes that, that, that is that serious, it be, can become easy to just forget what happened yesterday. I have trouble remembering what I ate yesterday. And it can become easy to have those problems be at the forefront of your mind and that worry come into your life. And the scary things about these moments is that because they are valleys, they tend to last longer than the mountains. So two things. Number one, if you're in the place where Elijah is, that you are scared, that you're facing a valley that seems very long, or that you're in the middle of one. 
on your own this week, I would challenge you to read the rest of 1 Kings chapter 19 and see and watch how God restores Elijah because that same restoration is available to you. But I want you to do that on your own because I want you to have that conversation with God to pray and say, I need that restoration as well. Number two, it is Thanksgiving this week. So my challenge to you, regardless of where you are on this spectrum, if you're on the mountain, if you're just on regular land or you're in a valley, take a piece of paper, take a poster board, whatever it is, with your family, on your own, however you want to do it. Write down the things that God has done for you that you can remember. And as you remember them, add more. Put them to paper that you can see them because if you list them off in your head, it may not seem as significant, but as you start seeing that list grow of the ways that you know God has has worked in your life, then you can build confidence that He is with you in your future. But I want to end with this warning because I don't want to be a pastor that tells you, follow God and everything will always be okay. Because that's not necessarily the case or else we wouldn't have those valleys in the first place. And there's this argument that people say that if God is good, well, then He would protect us from all of those things. Faith isn't meant to protect us from evil. It's meant to give us the means to walk through it and come out on the other side. This does not always mean that God will protect you from being hurt, protect you from losing someone you love or losing your own life. The faith that we have in God is a faith that is eternal. And if we believe that we are saved, if we believe that God will come again and resurrect us, then that faith says, No matter what happens to me here, I am safe for eternity. Just because God doesn't protect you the way that you may want Him to, or the way that you expect Him to, does not mean He is not with you. It simply means that in His wisdom, He has other plans. But He is still with you, and He is walking with you through those moments. And it's okay to be afraid and it's okay to be angry. It's okay to be upset and sad and to cry and to cry aloud. God is big enough to handle that, right? But it's not okay to stay there. So let us not live our lives in that fear, in that sadness, but let us keep moving forward. And this Thanksgiving, as you spend time with your family, as you spend time with friends, as you spend time together as a community next Sabbath as well, Take time, like we did this morning, to list off the things that you were thankful for and remember who God has been to you in the past. And may all of our hearts on a daily basis be turned back to the Lord.